welcome to The Steminist, a show about women in STEM. I'm Ria Golovakova and I will be your host for this week's show. Recently, I have sat down with Nicole Adoranti, our very own NYUAD's STEM career advisor from the CDC. We had a very lengthy conversation that I felt I should not edit that much because it was very densely packed with information that I personally think is insanely useful. Nicole was brilliant and talking to her was a joy. We covered so many different topics, things from increasing confidence and how to approach interviews to the culture in academia and in STEM related industries and how to deal with mansplaining. If you want a career in anything STEM related, be that working outside the academia or in it, engineering, math, just anything related, then I think that you should really listen to this week's show and you will find tons of things that are useful, no matter if you're a freshman or a senior about to graduate. I'm Nicole Adaranti. I'm the professional and graduate school advisor for students in STEM and pre-health here at the Career Development Center at NYUAD. I have focused on working with university students since I completed my master's degree. I've always been interested in how people move through their careers. How do your consultations and meetings with students go? How do you advise them? So our model here is that we are all generalists. So I get all kinds of questions from students from all sorts of majors or thinking about different majors. And then where my area of depth or my area of expertise lies in is helping students in STEM and pre-health get ready and think about professional schools, graduate schools, working in those particular fields after they're done with their schooling. The meetings can be a conversation, brainstorming, revising and editing CVs and cover letters, having a look at graduate school applications and organizing all of the information around that. Um, It can span into how to network with people, choosing courses, academic ideas. It can really be anything. What is networking? How do you define it? So I think the word networking is pretty intimidating because we're not quite sure how to do it. It's one of those things that takes practice and we never really know if we're actually networking or not. So the way I like to think of it is that it's just a conversation. Usually the word networking can lead us to feel there's a specific outcome we're looking for um, or we're gaining something, something tangible from the actual networking itself. Whereas just having a conversation takes a lot of the pressure off and leaves us open to not quite knowing what the outcome might be and hopefully being pleasantly surprised. Despite that, Mm -hmm. networking is still not a normal conversation. One has to be professional per se. And I feel like that's another mysterious word. What would you say that actually means? So I think that networking is specific to careers and what you information you want to collect about a career or perhaps having a transaction where you're gaining something from someone. So there can be different stages of it and related to careers, whether it's finding out information of what somebody else does or looking for an opportunity and learning who the right person is to talk to about that or putting yourself out there in terms of this is what I'm interested in. Are there other people out there in the world who are the same as me? So in the setting of a networking specific event, right. like the ones we just had yes. this week, how does one approach it given that there's an interesting person and I want to come up to them? 
How do I do it? We tend to stand around or connect with people that we already know at an, at an event because it's just more comfortable. So I think that there's a lot we can do that starts with just before we talk. So the way we dress and the way we carry ourselves, sometimes uh, pretending you're more confident than you actually are helps you to just approach someone and start a conversation. So Sometimes in networking, we talk about what your elevator pitch is. If you were stuck with this person in an elevator and moving amongst maybe five floors mm -hmm. before they get off, what would you say to them? So you want to keep it short and sweet. Maybe introduce yourself, talk about what your interests are, something interesting about you as a person, uh, a unique aspect. And then asking them about themselves. So asking open-ended questions, interest in their role, their development, what their advice might be. And that conversation usually lasts, that I would imagine, a good five to 10 minutes, which gets you in the door. Another thing that I think is important to sort of find out about is in those conversations, how does one actually end up getting something useful out of it, like getting a point of contact or a connection of some sort, rather than just making small talk for five to 10 minutes and then saying goodbye? And then we're talking to the person again. I think you would want to establish if the person is within your area of interest. So having some targeted questions that you like to ask them, whether it's a specialty field or the type of role that they're in or the type of experience that they've had in the past. Once you can determine that, I think asking for contact information, whether it's a business card or writing down an email or um, typing contact information into a phone is totally warranted. So people who are coming to a predefined networking event are there to share their details with. It feels a bit bold, but reminding yourself that's why they're there and then also slowing yourself down instead of thinking, I need to get something out of this person right away. First determining if it's someone of value to you and you have that connection. So looking for a quality conversation. How can one network outside of such events? because obviously here we have VSTEM and here we have the CDC organizing networking events all the time but in settings where that does not happen and just in general like outside of such specific targeted events. People don't really love networking. I don't think there's a lot of natural born networkers. It's very intimidating so I think going beyond the sort of pre-planned events is difficult. I think a great way to start is looking online to find out who's doing what, what jobs or internship opportunities might be posted, having a look at LinkedIn, people in different companies, you've heard of someone who had an experience that sounds interesting, um, people are on LinkedIn to be found and talk about their careers, reaching out whether it's email or going to an event even that's not necessarily related, but still might allow you to have some interesting conversations. So sometimes even being invited to a party with a whole bunch of people you don't know might be a nice opportunity to have a conversation. Let's say I found a very interesting person online and I want to contact them. How do I go about sending that email? How should I structure that message? Mm -hmm. I think starting with introducing yourself, a little bit about you, and then why you're contacting them, what you find interesting about them, what you know. Maybe that you've seen that they work for a specific company or they have a specific role or specific training that you would love to learn more about. And I would quantify what you're asking them for. 
So you want to be clear, I'm interested in having a brief conversation with you. I find that starting small with what you're asking for, you're more apt to get a positive response. So meanwhile, not everyone has a job to offer or an internship to offer, but a lot of people have five to 10 minutes to chat about themselves over the phone if you're calling them. So making it very easy for someone to say yes by you creating the space and doing the work behind the scenes. Given that such a conversation is set up, how would one go about structuring that conversation given that you're the one that initiated it, so mm -hmm. you kind of have to be in charge of it and make sure that it flows. So there's flow in terms of logistics, um, and then there's flow in terms of conversation and follow-up. So I would say the logistics side is if you're asking someone for a conversation or a discussion about what they're doing, uh, you go to them, you buy them the coffee, you're making more of the effort to fit into their schedule, let's say. So there's that side of things. And then the conversational flow, I would say, is asking open-ended questions, asking for advice, asking them about what they do. So I find once you start to ask people about their positions and their experience and their sort of insight or advice, it starts to flow. People love talking about what they're doing, especially if they're happy. And you'll know by one open-ended question, tell me about how you got started. Tell me about the best parts of your job. Tell me about the challenges in this field for women. What should one do if they just see an interesting person in an everyday setting given? Mm -hmm. For example, I see a cool professor walking around that I'm not ah. taking a class with. How do I approach them? Sometimes you can email. Sometimes they have drop-in hours in their office where you can ask and... Uh, to meet with them and set the stage for the type of conversation you want to have. So I would love to ask you about your background um, in academia in chemistry. Um, how did you get here? I would love to know more about your experience when you were a professor in Romania. Um, so you're sort of setting the stage so that they know what to expect. You're not asking for help in a course or talking about um, academic issues, but rather them as a person. How does one network specifically as a STEM major? Because I feel like so much of this professional connection making is targeted more at people who are looking for jobs in the workforce and internships. And for STEM, it's kind of different because people are in the academia world and looking for research positions. Mm -hmm. And I personally find it very hard to define what networking means for me as someone who is interested in continuing in academia and mm -hmm. not entering the workforce. I think it's difficult to know what's out there in its entirety. I think academia is its own type of culture, which is interesting. So I think that knowing a little bit about where you're coming from and how you might be perceived will help you to network within different areas, whether it's industry or academia. I think that it might be difficult in academia to break through some barriers that have been traditionally male. So I think industry is more apt to adjust. It seems to me like industry can move quickly or quicker than academia. So there's some preconceived structures in place. Um, so I think that that's a little bit swimming upstream in terms of being a female, although it's not really a disadvantage when we've got an ever-increasing number of mentors, women who are carving the path, um, women's scholarships that are specifically targeted to retain talent uh, in the STEM fields. 
I think that academia is almost treated as an industry unto itself. So knowing how that industry works. So doing a lot of research, asking the questions, and then not being intimidated by it. So I find that a lot of students who I do work with are intimidated by academia because they feel like it's never going to happen. Or there's a lot of ego and personality that comes along with establishing yourself in academia. So I think that separating out the discouragement from it being a possibility, knowing that you're a minority in the field, whether it's industry or academia, and continuing on, linking up, finding your mentors, and connecting with them, and keeping those ties quite strong as you move forward. Specifically to NYUAD, mm -hmm. what sorts of opportunities are available to students here in terms of STEM that you think students might not necessarily know about? Definitely WeSTEM. That's a great place to start. It's a hub of information. I find that there's an enthusiasm and a sense of positivity and inclusion that is refreshing. So everybody is welcome, no matter if you're a woman or a man. The Career Development Center can help with things like career planning, exploring what's out there, having those conversations, developing knowledge of what skills you have, what skills you would like to develop, and where to get that. And then we've got internship postings, volunteer postings, employer information sessions, meetups that we support all the time. Outside of that, I would definitely take advantage of gaining experience when you're studying away. So finding out in advance what's possible in terms of um, your ability to work or if there's an internship that might be paid or unpaid creating links at NYU Global Sites. I think one thing that stands out for me right now is working with students who are asked to, or that want to complete an application for a scholarship because they're a woman and because they're in STEM and there are specific scholarships tailored from large companies such as Adobe or Google. Um, and that once they read an application, it can become very intimidating, especially in the early years of your education. You might see a drop down menu or a list of, let's say languages, um, if you're a computer science major, and you can only check off one or two of them out of a list of 12 to 15. So I've seen a lot of students, especially women, start to think, I don't really have what it takes because I can only check off one to two of these. So I think that um, the discouragement that comes with that and thinking I don't have enough, I don't have the type of experience that they're looking for and continuing on. I think that's a student issue in general, but I definitely see it in STEM because you're such a small group. And leading mm -hmm. on from that, how should one approach them? Applying to internships and research positions, how should mm -hmm. one fulfill that application? I think that coming and having your documents in order, having your CV, knowing how to write a cover letter, these are really different documents than other things that you're ever going to write. So knowing how to craft your CV, how to tailor it to different things that you see, how to tailor it to job positions that might not necessarily be advertised. So knowing in a hidden job, let's say, that's not out there to see what they're requiring, how to structure that what to get on there, what to include and what not to include. So having your documents up to date, attending networking events, perhaps updating a LinkedIn account, which I like to consider a live CV of sorts, um, and constantly staying positive. 
Do you have any specific advice on what to include, what not to include, and how mm -hmm. to find those hidden opportunities? I think what to include and what not to include depends on what you're applying for. So I always like to think about who's reading these documents and what do they want to see. So sometimes we can get lost in our own experience and we might not realize that the other person reading it isn't necessarily going to be interested or they might not see what skills you have because you've lost them and it's too far down in your document or it's a really long bullet point, let's say, on the CV. So coming into the CDC, I find helps when we can ask, so what? So it's a bit of a, of a brutal question, um, but it gets you thinking, what does this mean to the reader? And how can I capture what they want to see? So usually we can help to um, make your document much more concise. And then for the hidden um, positions or the ones that aren't necessarily advertised, that's going to be through networking and collecting information. Whether it's learning about the culture of a company on their website or having a conversation with a representative from Etihad, hearing their experience, kind of demystifying what process they've gone through and what advice they might give. Um, and creating notes for yourself or a way of tracking that information so you don't forget. Mm -hmm. What sorts of questions should one ask to mm -hmm. find out these things? What are they doing day to day? So let's take the instance you're at a networking event and a representative from Etihad is there. Asking them what they do every day. What languages are they using if they're doing a computer science um, related or they're using those technical skills in their job? Do they work with people? Is it in a big team? Are they by themselves? So starting to get a sense of what day-to-day -day their interactions with others are like. So uh, are they writing? Is that important? What background do they have? Is a master's definitely required in their field or not? So starting to get a feel of where they're coming from and what they do day-to-day. -day. And how should one approach interviews mm -hmm. as part of the application process? How to make a good impression at an interview? I would start before the interview and ask for a job description. So when you're asked for an interview, always asking to the person who's writing to you or calling you if they have a copy of the job description, which can give you a lot of details and insight into what they're looking for. And then brainstorming with us here or even on your own, having a look at what types of questions will they ask me. So there's sort of general interview questions. Why are you interested in the job? What do you see your greatest challenge? Tell me a little bit about yourself to more technical questions that you might need to do a bit more homework on or brush up on. We've got some resources here, Big Interview or Interview Stream, which you can access through CareerNet, which allows you to rec record yourself on video using your laptop, which is really interesting um, and can be a little bit eye-opening to see what you look like on the other side. So that can give you a sense of your nonverbals, your body language, if you're uh, trailing on in a question and you've sort of lost them. So having uh, the chance to record yourself and watch yourself and also asking one of the advisors here to give you some feedback on the answers that you've given. So you can determine what the questions are and record yourself. Coming in for a mock interview is also useful. Sometimes um, I recommend to students talking to their themselves in front of a mirror <laughs> just to sort of practice, 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 right? An interview can feel so unnatural because we're trying to give them, and we, if we really want the position, we're trying to give them the best chance to see that we're great for the position. I think that we forget that on the other side of an interview, they're people too. So checking in with them, asking if 
your answer is what they wanted to hear, asking if they'd like you to continue on. So trying to be as authentic as possible in a very contrived type of situation or setting. Do you have any tips in terms of body language? What to try to improve on and what to try to do and not to do? That's a great question because there's so many different nuances and different cultures about body language. So you would want to know where the interview is, perhaps what culture it is, um, what might be acceptable. We have a resource called Going Global as well on CareerNet, which gives you some insight into different cities and countries around the world and what they might expect in terms of culture. So whether shaking a hand. So um, for instance, in the Middle East region, it might not be as appropriate if you're interviewing with someone, if you are a woman and they're a man, they might not shake your hand. So knowing should you reach out and shake someone's hand or should you not? Um, So little things like that might be interesting to think of before you go so that you're aware. And then I think mainly with an interview, staying open, remaining open, crossing your arms, biting your nails, fiddling with things that are distracting. You know, I've seen sometimes someone clicking a pen over and over and they might not realize they're doing that, uh, which a mock interview or some self-reflection might help uh, to notice what are your nervous habits. So while speaking about body language, and while Nicole is certainly right that there are many cultural differences, there are still things you can do to help yourself, not only in the way that you're perceived, but help yourself in terms of how you yourself feel in the stressful situation of an interview. There is a study conducted by Kearney, Cuddy, and Yap in 2010 that focused on the effects of nonverbal displays, in other words, body language on stress hormone levels and behavior during a stressful situation. One of the groups was told to hold postures associated with higher power, open and expansive, like putting your arms on your waist like Superman and such, while another group was asked to show postures associated with low power, so crossing your arms and legs and taking up less space, and the third group was asked not to do anything at all. Participants held those positions for a few minutes, and then after that they were put in a stressful situation and their hormone levels and behavior were measured. And surprisingly, after just a few minutes of posing as somebody who is more powerful, the participants did indeed have increased feelings of power and tolerance for risk and stress. And they actually had lower cortisol levels, cortisol, which is a hormone associated with stress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a few similarities in terms of doing the research, knowing what their expectations are. And a lot of the time students don't realize that they can reach out to admissions staff and graduate school programs directly. So for instance, I've called places like ETH Zurich to ask them questions about the admissions process and advice for students and they've been really friendly and that's what they're there for and they're sort of demystifying the process and giving advice for students to um, consider in their application. So starting with the research, creating um, and curating sort of a list of information that might help you to organize information. So sometimes we start to look at program after program after program and all the information and admission requirements and deadlines kind of start to become muddled. So having a way of organizing that for yourself so you can see at a snapshot what's coming up, what do I need to do? Because it can start to seem like a mountain in front of us and 
having that information broken down and organized can help you to see what to do step by step and dealing with one thing at a time. I think going out and um, collecting expertise from people in the field. So if you are applying for a graduate program in chemistry, let's say, who are the chemistry professors you know on campus? Can you have a discussion with them? Can you tap into their network? So I've heard from students that they have a, their academic mentor who's not necessarily an expert in the field they want to apply to for graduate school, but they know someone, let's say, out there in the world in their network um, who might be able to have a conversation and help with them. So tapping into an academic network as well. So a statement of purpose is much more research oriented. So I would start on the websites. A lot of them will say, we've got a frequently asked question section on our website. So going through and filtering through by first collecting the information and then realizing what gaps you might have. So for instance, I just had a student come in who's interested in two programs at one institution but they weren't sure whether they could apply for just one or if they could apply for both. So then in that case, if it's not written on the website, that's warranting communication with the school directly. And we found out that indeed he could apply to both of them. He would just have to pay the admissions application fee twice. So now he's got that information and he can go ahead without laboring over, I have to choose one over the other. So that's just an example for you. Going away from the technicalities yeah. of the application process, how can one build up confidence? Mm -hmm. And how can one, what advice would you give to people who find it hard to speak up, for example, in, like, yeah. in a group setting, in, at a networking event, at anything like that? Yeah, I think that there's a celebration of extroversion in general um, on campus and in the world where the people who put themselves out there and are heard tend to magnetize or attract others because they're known, they're seen, they're heard. So I am considering introverts and people who might not necessarily put themselves out there. And I've read some articles about celebrating the introvert and how introverts can actually network. And it might not necessarily be person to person. So an introvert gets their energy from being alone, whereas an extrovert gets their energy from interacting with the right kinds of people. So how could an introvert contact people? We've got online opportunities, we've got one-on-one, -on -one, which might not be as intimidating. So maybe for someone who's intimidated by the networking event in general, could set themselves a goal. So increasing confidence by setting a realistic goal. I'm going to speak to two people and have hopefully one quality conversation. So one quality conversation doesn't seem like a lot, but for someone who has a difficult time putting themselves out there, uh, it definitely can be. And maybe sometimes an extrovert might not just be in the mood for it that day, right? So I think setting a realistic expectation is a good start. And then once you accomplish a realistic expectation, that can help to build confidence. What would a confident person feel like? Can you extrapolate on that for you? They've got their shoulders back, they have a smile on their face, they um, approach a group and say, hi, sorry to interrupt, but may I join your conversation? Usually in a networking event, that's what people are there for. So starting in a situation where your chances might be higher to have a good connection with someone. And then hopefully going away with one quality experience or perhaps one um, email or phone number of a person that you could follow up on. I think with confidence, it practice makes perfect. You know, we can think back to times of making friends in high school. 
you know, a simple example. And now in university, you're thinking, oh, I made friends in high school. That was fine. But at the beginning of high school, it might not have been so, so easy to do. And building on that, how to get mm-hmm. rid of the awkwardness during small talk, yeah, which can be very awkward and unnatural. I don't think that awkwardness ever fully goes away. So you could be 60 years old and still have awkwardness in making small talk um, and recognizing that. So there's two different kinds of people, right? And I know that um, this is... I'm thinking a little bit about the difference between men and women. So oftentimes men will approach networking as an interaction. How can I get what I need from this person? There are winners and there are losers in life. Um, I'm going to win. I'm going to have a winning conversation. This isn't necessarily true all the time, but women look for relationships and how to build them and oftentimes will try to reach out to learn how to help somebody else. And I see this with WeSTEM. So putting out... um, as a group situations to help other people actually helps the group. So I think that approaching um, an awkward situation by first of all acknowledging, it's going to be awkward, it's fine, I can get through it. Picturing yourself perhaps at the end of the interaction and having a triumph, so visualizing perhaps the best possible outcome might help you to see instead of focusing just on, you know, that voice in your head that's like, oh gosh, I'm so awkward and everybody can notice. And then at a networking event, it's just, an awkward situation for most people. So accepting it and moving on regardless. Do you have any advice for how one should sell oneself and present oneself to impress others? Yeah, I think that um, there's two different facets to that. Knowing your unique story, uh, being able to articulate yourself, what you're interested in, what you've accomplished, and then also being clear about how you can develop how you are interested in others and interested in becoming a better person. So being interested and interesting. For STEM especially, women are still a minority. So there is a disadvantage in the way that, um, you know, it's carving a path a lot of the times, being the first woman in a certain position, being the first woman in um, to create something or to be on a team of men. So definitely there are barriers, there are disadvantages, but I think that that's changing and that's changing really quickly. So I'm starting to see women being sought out for positions, um, women being valued and, um, you know, creating things that are just totally different and totally unique. So there is a change in that. I think that um, it's best not to sort of focus on men are so much more different than women, but just knowing that there might be an undercurrent of difference. Culture could play into it as well. So certain cultures might have a different emphasis on the relationship between men and women. Some cultures um, might be completely men in a certain STEM field, and other cultures might be more women than men. So I think recognizing that differences are there in terms of how relating happens, but also knowing that uh, to let it go and to not let it flavor or color everything that you're that you're approaching. What do you think could be done to get more women and girls involved in STEM? Yeah, I think that um, it probably starts at a, at a very young age. I think that as we're having more mentors and as we're having more examples of women in the field, then that idea and that seed can be planted at a young age. I think that encouragement in high school, so I know that WeSTEM is working on a mentorship with high school students to dissuade discouragement for 
from remaining in the field. Perhaps there's preconceived notions um, that women aren't good at certain subjects like math, let's say, or like the hard sciences. So I think that starting at a young age is very important and encouraging that. And I think that creating a network that's non-competitive in the way that if we lift each other up, then it can only lead to better things. So it's kind of like the image of pushing someone up. Let's say you're at a certain level and you see uh, a plateau ahead of you or high above you and you help someone by pushing them up. And then once they're up on that level, they reach their hand down to lift you up. So I've seen images like this where it's not stepping over other people to get where you're at. And I definitely see this in Weston. And I think that culture of upliftment and helping others to achieve can only make each other greater. Do you have any advice on how to deal with condescending attitudes yeah. towards you because of your gender and academia especially? What yeah. if some a professor is dismissing you because you're a woman or somebody's not giving you an opportunity or mansplaining? How should one deal with that situation? Yeah, I like that term, mansplaining. Um, Yeah, it's very real. So I'm not going to uh, sugarcoat it that that's there. And I think that will always be there. I think in many fields, it's just the reality. Um, I think that the first line of defense is not taking it personally because it can feel very personal and it can sort of undercut all the work that you've done and the person that you are and it can feel almost like a blow to the stomach you know it feels almost like someone's punching you in the gut and I think that reframing that that it's not personal and uh, creating a strength from within yourself so there's a difference between having recognition from outside of you and then also knowing your value and developing your strength from within so I think that when we constantly look outside for recognition which I think is very common in academia. We're looking to be published. We're looking to be recognized in our field. We're looking to be at the top so that people know who we are. Um, and so I think that an outside opinion can matter so much. And when someone cuts that down or someone tries to make you feel like um, you don't have what it takes, it can be very personal. To continue on the topic of women being discriminated against in academia and STEM, Nicole actually shared an article with me a certain amount of time after our interview entitled, Why Do So Many Women Leave Engineering? This is from the World Economics Forum, and the article was published on 29th November 2016, uh, basically stating that 20% of engineering grads are female, but only 13% of the engineering workforce is made up of women. So why the discrepancy? And they reference a study conducted in 2015 by Saren, Silby, Keck, and Rubino. It showed that evidence that rather than a lack of mentors or difficulty maintaining work-life balance, which are often stated as the most common reasons for women leaving STEM-related fields, the main difficulty was actually in group dynamics 
and in teamwork, which is such an essential part of work in those industries. Female engineering students interviewed claimed that they were treated dif- differently by their female classmates and subordinates, and that while their male counterparts were given more challenging problems, the women were actually relegated to routine managerial and secretarial tasks instead that are only tangentially related to their actual job. That these groups' dynamics basically resulted in disillusionment with their career prospects and caused them to drop out. One of the stories is quoted from a student named Aurora, who stated that during her internship at a military defense contractor, the environment was creepy, with older weirdo men engineers hitting on me all the time, and a sexist infrastructure was in place that kept female interns shuffling papers while their oftentimes less experienced male counterparts had legitimate engineering assignments. While there are many stereotypes in STEM especially related to women, there are also examples of great and supportive environments. One of these is the hashtag I look like an engineer movement that was started on Twitter by Isis Anshali Wenger, who basically posted a selfie of herself stating, this is what an engineer looks like. And many other women took selfies of themselves and also shared them, talking about their jobs and basically trying to prove that there are engineers and scientists of the female gender that look very differently, just like men can. If you want any further information on the World Economics Forum and their discussion on gender, I will be attaching a link to a one-hour recording of the Disrupting the Status Quo of Gender Roles session on their annual meeting in this past year. But I think there is a time and place for removing that personal aspect and continuing on. So whether that's developing a strategy for strengthening yourself and carrying on, whether it's uh, directly addressing harassment in the workplace, I mean, there can be so many variations of this theme, Um, and knowing your rights and continuing on, getting away from negativity, um, surrounding yourself with people who do lift you up or at least make you feel like you have value and then also knowing your own value within yourself. The thing with women is that we oftentimes want recognition in a relational way. So we are interested in building relationships, which is why women are so important and crucial for teamwork and within every field. And I think there's a lot of value added within STEM fields in terms of building relationships on team, um, in team aspects and teamwork building. But yeah, it's, it's, a drip effect, right? You feel like you're a voice, you're dripping one drop of water in a pail, and if there's enough drips, then eventually it overflows and things change. Um, to finish off, one last question. Yes. Do you have a female role model? And if you do, who is it and why do you admire her? I do. I love this question, and I think about this often, and I would say it's my mother. So my mother is such an inspiration to me because she worked for her life for the government and she raised two children who I think have done a very good job (laughs) since I'm one of them. And now she is almost 65. She spends her winters traveling around the world. So my mother has done the Camino de Santiago. So it's about an 800 kilometer pilgrimage walk in Northern Spain. And she has done it twice by carrying her own 20 kilogram backpack through the entire ordeal in her early 60s, which was a feat unto itself. I was so proud of her. 
um, she's constantly pushing the boundaries. So she will pack a backpack and live a simple, minimalistic backpacker lifestyle for months on end, meeting people around the world, um, breaking down the concept that when you retire, you should stay at home and bake cookies. So she um, has done this of her own volition. I don't know if she necessarily has other people in her community who are doing the same things. So she goes ahead and does this without, um, you know, without letting people who don't understand why she's doing what she's doing bring her down. So she continues on and she knows what makes her happy and I'm so proud of her. She's my inspiration. Thank you for tuning in to The Steminist this week. We're very happy to have had you here with us and we hope that you enjoyed the episode. We will be releasing a new episode in two weeks' time at the same time on Hala Radio and subsequently on our SoundCloud, depending on where you're listening. You can find us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, and you can also follow us on Twitter. Thank you very much and have a great day.